I think the church can do a better job of of expanding its theological Rolodex, if you will, not just in color, but in gender and, you know, other areas that will give people a better assessment on how to see the manifold wisdom of God. Welcome to the Renovare Podcast, a place for honest and unhurried conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and our guest today is recording artist, performer, cultural curator, activist, and writer, Sho Baraka. Yeah. I'm a lover, a provider, I'm a teacher, I'm a fighter. I know there's grace for me even when I'm wrong. Through all my indiscretions and all my imperfections, I'ma love you to the day that I'm gone. How do you spell dad? It goes L-O-V-E. How do you spell dad? It goes L-O-V-E. Yeah. You know how when you meet someone, and you can just tell, the well goes deep. There's a richness, a sort of thoughtful mystery behind their words. That was my sense in meeting Sho. He's a keeper of the stories, a thoughtful and bold truth teller, a rhythmic prophet. He's also a strong writer who's a delight to read and listen to. I'm grateful to have learned from him today and for the chance to share our conversation with you. I spoke with Sho from his home in Atlanta about his book titled, He Saw That It Was Good. Reimagining Your Creative Life to Repair Our Broken World. And the music we're playing throughout this recording is, of course, show's work. Show, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little about your book. Long story short, uh, which probably be still long, I, um, around 2010, about 10 years into my faith journey, I, um, started wrestling really deeply with what does it mean for Jesus to saturate every aspect of your life, not just being pious for spiritual formation in a sense of quiet times and sharing my faith, but like in every activity and who I am, the things I do, what does it mean to have a holistic gospel and a holistic idea of redemption? I'd not heard a lot of people communicate at least I don't think I did up until that point, a very robust perspective of what it means to have a theology of work, a theology of activity, creativity, things of that nature. And so around my second album, I started to wrestle with this. And the more I wrestled with it, I was introduced to people who were fairly thorough in those areas of, of their theology and preaching and teaching. Then I started going to conferences and then I started to develop my own kind of affection and affinity for communicating my own kind of view of a theology of work, an ethic of work. Um, what does it mean to be creative? What does it mean to create, to, to labor, co-labor with God? And this idea of a holistic redemption, not just a redemption of my own individual relationship with him, but my redemption, a redemptive relationship with others, a redemption to the Genesis 128 and uh, cultivate and multiply. What does that mean? Um, and if all things are tarnished, how is he redeeming all things? Systems and all. And so that actually led me to more justice-oriented uh, you know, processes as well. So it's not this detachment of 
a righteous, pious life from this active pursuit of justice and social good, but all of it is encompassing just a whole new eschatology, if you will. And so as I was engaging in some of the faith and work spaces around the nation, I realized that some of it was very healthy, but there's seemed to be some incompleteness when it came to either how to help the creative or in some spaces it was quite elite um, and it didn't feel all encompassing to um, to people who didn't have this idea of like a high vocational calling, like a politician, lawyer, doctor. It's like, man, what does it mean for me just to be a guy who's working at UPS? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, or, or it was, it lacked, the, you know, ethnic or, you know, racial or cultural nuance. And one of the things I realized, it was like, man, I think if I look through the Black Christian tradition, specifically in America, you see a fairly robust approach to what it means to love God, love neighbor, and to do good. Now, it it didn't have the fancy theological, you know, posture of like you know, theology of work or, you know, but it was just, you know, it was this idea like the the now and the great by and by, like God cares about my physical freedoms and he calls, he cares about my spiritual liberation as well. And so I was like, man, how do I begin to take this and communicate it in a way that I think the folks who love me, the folks who follow me can begin to dissect this and the people who um, are looking for a new paradigm in this whole faith, work, uh, justice uh, conversation can get new information. And so that's led me to this book. He saw that it was good. a Not only a didactic approach, but also me trying to be creative. And therefore, that's why you have you know the short stories, the parables, the poems. That's kind of like the creation of it. That's how I got there. And uh, in 2016, I wrote an article about how I was struggling to vote for both Trump and Hillary Clinton. And it it made a lot of people excited, made a lot of people mad. And I uh, was approached by many people like, hey, you should write a book. And, uh, and I knew I just didn't want to write a book about race and politics. I wanted to write something a little bit more closely, something I felt like I had more authority to speak to. It's good. Could you say a little about help for creatives and what you hope to see? Yeah, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to both liberate and challenge creatives in a sense that oftentimes the the spaces in which creatives are wrangled, <laughs> the prides that we congregate in. Uh, can also often be insular in a sense that we can speak to one another and really demonize the church because of its lack of patronizing or its lack of opportunities to express the giftings and, and the callings that we feel like the Lord has gifted, is, is put before us. And so uh, it leads a lot of people to be either anxious, to be negligent, or even to some degree leave leave the church altogether. So I wanted to challenge them to see how historically the church is somewhat supported, how people have used, used their creativity alongside the church, but I also wanted to challenge the church and say, hey, here's how people have um, used their gift to benefit you. So you should also, in a sense, you leaders, you people who 
call yourselves to be a part of this body? How can you partner with these creatives? But then not only that, just give a better theology of how to use your gifts and your skill sets and that your work doesn't have to be necessarily tied to some social good for it to be social good. Well, you can be a painter and the very fact that you paint out of the beauty of God, that's an act of worship. And how do we encourage folks to feel like they're not the junior varsity Christian because they don't do vocational ministry? One of the things I noticed a couple of times throughout your book is a concern with the devaluing of the oral tradition and folk stories in Christianity. Could you say a little about that? Absolutely. That's, yeah. There's so many directions and angles that I can take this to. I think ultimately, I may get in some trouble here. I'm no, I'm no biblical historian, but you know, if you really think about the creation of the Bible itself, the written, I mean, the word of God is an oral tradition. It's passed down, you know, ideas of, you know, when you think about the gospels being collected, it's because they were great listeners to what stories were being told of Jesus. Many people who, you know, some of the folks who've never traveled with Jesus were, or folks who we trust to carry on the legacy of his truth, of his, of his life. So that's the oral, that's an oral tradition. And it's amazing how, to me, what seems to me to be a um, demoralizing of that very essence that held together the fabric of our faith being looked up, looked upon as uh, either deficient or, or uh, which lacks utility today, and only the written word has value. Only academia, if you will, has value to lift people out of ignorance. And in a lot of cultures, the oral tradition is just as strong as the written word. And I specifically think in, uh, in, in Black history, we oftentimes are negligent in how we view the oral um, traditions passed down, stories passed down that bring dignity and uh, affirmation and insight to a people. And so Zora Neherson is somebody who I think brings a lot of value in that. I think Toni Morrison, one of my favorite writers, talks about this idea of rootedness and trusting the ancestors and the information. And oftentimes, because it's not an academic institution, the ancestors get, um, you know, they, they don't get, we don't, get, we don't give individuals like that credit for the types of um, information and legacy they pass down. So, yeah, that's, yeah, I often find that the oral tradition is left behind when it when it's when we think about valid ways to uh, communicate truth. Yeah, that's good. I'm wondering if there's a tie to the creative and that in oral tradition there's something kind of dynamic and alive in in the telling. Um, I don't know. I wonder if there's a connection there of losing some of the creativity in Christian life, church life. Yeah, absolutely. So I can, I mean, if you just close your eyes and you think about a storyteller, an orator, a, a griot, right? you just like there's drama, there's theatrics to storytelling, you know? Somebody stands before you and tells you the Genesis narrative. You can imagine that if it's a different, if it's a certain type of person, they can bring inflections and emphasis to certain things. Um they arrest the crowd, like the attention of the crowd. And they're, they're, it's different when just reading something. You have to 
you know, um, you have to bring your imagination to the written word. Um, now, of course, the writer can give emphasis, and, but you know that it's hard to it's harder to assume tones when when reading. Like, so our text messaging is <laughs> could be problematic in conflict. <laughs> but when you're speaking to somebody, you get there's there's little to be lost in translation, if you will. Therefore, when uh, an oral tradition, I think it it fits a more <laughs> I was going to say a more colorful people, and I didn't, didn't want no pun intended. But <laughs> when sure. you have oral, oral like oral traditions, tend to thrive in cultures that are more expressive. Right? There you go. Yeah, because of the the means of the storyteller, and also I think this is the reason why. Um, these particular cultures have have storytellers and griots and and priestess and all these different types of communicators and high value, right? Rather in Western cultures, it's you know the 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 writers, the thinkers, the the professors. Those people tend to be more exalted. And if you even once again, I'm getting a little bit off my depth, but I think it's safe for me to say this. Even when you think about the Reformation versus kind of like some of the other um, expressions of Christian faith, the Orthodox movement and or well, more so your your African um, uh, expressions of faith to be more um, about communal expressions versus the Western is more about pulpit and teaching. You know, and so um, the oral tradition is if we can reclaim that, especially in our more evangelical spaces, um, I think we would see a lot more life and creativity in our churches, honestly. In the written word, we miss the tone, the inflection points. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's significant that Jesus taught in stories. And absolutely you can imagine the notes between the notes, right? What <laughs> What was in there? Yeah, I was angry, I was bitter, I was filled with pride I was selfish, I was foolish to believe those lies I love hate, love me, love rage, love greed I didn't love God, I just loved his things Love approval, love sex, love money, love fame But I ain't the same, thank the Lord I changed I'm trying to fight idolatry and lust Being good ain't enough, so in God I trust I got faith Yeah, okay Seeking restitution for all my mistakes Yeah Okay. Look me in my face, homeboy. You see grace? Yeah. Okay. Still unashamed, just in a new space. I'm just a little more humble now. In my mind, your work, rap, hip hop, is carrying on the oral tradition. Is is that too much of a stretch? No, it's absolutely. No, I think you go from folklore and spirituals to blues and jazz gospel and rhythm and blues to uh I, I missed i skipped spoken word but then you go you know all of that makes hip-hop you know what i mean so yeah. hip-hop is in the family of folklore of the spirituals of jazz blues ragtime all of these, all of these expressions of the 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 human being who went through these particular tensions in this country, is communicating. And this is why I think you know the whole a uh, holistic view of what we were talking about earlier is important because it's this idea of expression of a hopeful future, but also of a, a here and now reality, here and now eschatology of God. Please bring some sort of justice, uh, 
to my current circumstance and also provide for me a place that is much better than my per- my current circumstance in the future. And I think hip hop does that in a very materialistic way from its inception. It's like you think about the conditions in which hip hop was started in New York. It's a very blighted situation. And so they're, they're, they're rapping about their current circumstances, even sometimes role playing in wealth and status that they do not have, because that's the hope of a different, a different future. That's the hope of a different day. It's like, even if I have to rent these cars, even if I have to rent this jury for this video shoot, or even talk about the relationships and the, the status that I don't have now, I'll act like I have it because that's a future. That's a, that's a hope for something that they don't have now. And I think that's a very religious way of thinking, you know what I mean? Um, So I think that comes from, I guess you can say, the literary and the musical traditions of the past. I had an experience a few months ago where um, I was taking my son to school and it was like a half hour drive. And, And I realized on the drive home, I'm by myself and I thought, man, I could be tearing through some audio books and, you know, really digging into stuff. But, but instead I just, I just listen to music. And I and I kind of laughed, and I thought, no, I'm I'm hanging out with with the poets and the prophets. Like, why do I devalue <laughs> what they're teaching me and what I'm learning? But it's so experiential; it it just mm-hmm. has a totally different tone. Uh, it's a different yeah. learning. It's so helpful. Absolutely, yeah. It's a shorter experience, like maybe a, a 70, 80 minute album versus reading a you know a three hundred page book. But I will say, I've listening to like Kendrick Lamar's latest album versus reading a book. I mean, let me tell you, (laughs) I don't know. That may be a push, (laughs) you know, because that that album is fairly dense and he's talking about some things that are quite helpful and insightful. But you're also, you know, many authors and writers have, have, have communicated that you, you know, reading and listening is it gives you an opportunity to kind of like, experience and live in a time which is not your own, right? You read a book, you get to time travel in some sort of ways. And so by listening to Kendrick, I get to, I get to exist in the life of an individual who has different experiences than me. And I'm learning from that. I'm empathizing them. I'm expanding my worldview. And that's all reading is. That's all listening to an audible book is. If somebody is writing a book about, you know, conflict in another country, you're like, wow, that's, insightful. I did not know that. Oh, I'm learning new words. I'm learning about this people group. Well, we do that when listening to Kendrick Lamar's album. I'm not from Compton. I mean, although I'm, I didn't grow up too far from there, but there's still things I can learn about Compton. There's things I can learn about his life growing up. Like, oh man, I didn't, I didn't know that. And I do feel like especially white Americans can learn a lot by just peering into the culture, not in some voyeuristic way, right? But in a way that is informative, that is sympathetic and inquisitive for the purposes of becoming better human beings. Um, And I do think there's more out there, you know, now that is really available for folks to peer into than it was probably when I was younger. But, you know, I think that's the whole idea of kind of like privilege in this country is that black people have always been inundated with whiteness. So it's not hard for us to peer into the culture and know what's happening and know what it's like to be a white man and, in this particular part of the country or to be this person in it. But I think as representation expands, we're now starting to see, oh, this is what it's like. Approaching it as a learner. 
Absolutely. Thinking of um, Childish Bambino. Did I, did I get the name right? Do you know oh, his Gambino. song? Oh, Char- Gambino. Childish Gambino. Gambino. Yeah, the song this is America, the, the oh, video. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that thing shredded me. And it was, it's like I'd read about things, but then hearing it with the visuals, there's a creative, there's the art. It's so moving. Yeah, that song would be, I mean, with all respect to the song itself, which is a, is a great song. Without the visuals, that song doesn't nearly have the impact that it does. Yeah. The vision, and I think it was genius for him to release that song with and out, I mean, with a, a video so that people can see the jarring images of of kind of like the Jim Crow and so and just police brutality. It was just interesting. It was really, yeah, it was great. I thought it was great. Yeah. It stuck with me. I mean, it, it moved me in a dramatic way, which I mean, books that are jarring, ideas that are jarring, helpful, very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Have you been to the um, African-American Smithsonian? I have. My biggest regret is that I should have uh, allowed myself more time. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I also shouldn't have brought my kids with me. <laughs> so, because it's huge and them jokers get tired so quick. And it's just like, <laughs> you know, the first hour they're like, oh, this is great. And then it's like, okay, I'm ready to go. And I'm like, that you need at least a good six to eight hours to, yeah. to really engage all the floors, to move through there. And also, you know, bring your wallet because that uh, buying that food, it's uh, it's kind of expensive. <laughs> so, but it was a wonderful experience, though. Yeah, it was great. It was excellent. Got to um, spend some time with the curator of the religion, religious sections. And he uh-huh. was talking through and I just there's this such a robust history and wisdom and help in uh, the historical black church and that I feel is often lost in white America. Are there pieces of that tradition that, that you wish people knew or that y- you think would be helpful? Oh, I just think in general, I mean, and it's not just white people, honestly, there are treasures that are buried throughout our country that need to be dug up and, and shared with not just white people, with black people as well. I think, you know, I went to a black church for many, 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 well, a multi-ethnic church with with black pastors for the most part for many years. And it took them about nine to 10 years to quote uh, a black theologian before that, you know, that was dead. And uh, I think because of that, oftentimes when we think of Black Christianity before the civil rights movement, um, we don't find it to be useful. We don't find it to be thoughtful and carrying much depth. We think it's just about slavery or slave liberation. And there's so much more to, you know, Black church than the civil rights movement, the abolition movement. You just got to find those resources, find those people. Um very few people would know who, you know, Richard Allen and the AME church is, the history behind that. Very few people would know who Jarena Lee is, who, you know, woman evangelist out of the AME, AME church, Lemuel Haynes, the, um, you know, the Richard Baptiste, the, uh, go on and on, Anna Julia Cooper's, uh, I just find that Oftentimes we just jump to the Frederick Douglasses, the Harriet Tubman's, 
the MLKs, Malcolm X's, you know, although he wasn't, you know, a Christian, but still, like when we think about religious thinkers, that's it um, because they're pop culture. And you don't seem like the kind of person who just likes pop music. <laughs> um, so when you listen to music, you oftentimes you dig into um, the crates, as we used to say, you know, you dig it into the crates for the for the, the goodies, the things that people aren't messing with to say, hey, I, I found something that's brilliant that isn't kind of oversaturated. So I think we have to do the same thing with when it comes to black Christian thinkers. There's so many people out there who have great things to say, and they're not just activists. They are actually Christian thinkers and theologians. All I wanted was a perfect life, some perfect kids and a perfect wife. Some perfect days and some perfect nights, even though I'm flawed, I should be all right. A child with special needs didn't fit in my plans. I'm a needy man wanting more than what you put in his hands. All I wanted was a perfect family core. Now I'm envying the family next door. Could you unpack a little the term evangelical edit? Yeah, it's just when evangelicals want to come through and uh, and bore you to death. <laughs> now, so when I use that term, um, it, it primarily means there is a way in which evangelicals tend to operate culturally. And there's a sense of which they're trying to protect something, right? And in that protecting, what often happens, and, and granted, sometimes that protecting is a very good thing, right? But oftentimes what happens is that that protection becomes a, a sense of cultural suppression that keeps an individual from expressing or communicating or doing things that goes against this cultural sensibility. That often plays itself out in art. It often it plays itself out in methods. Uh, and oftentimes it can play itself out even in the interpretations of theological truths. And so for me, I found myself to be hit with this edit oftentimes through my creative life. So that's the, I would say that's a pretty quick um, example of what I mean by the evangelical edit. That's good. In your book, you talk about conversation you had with your daughter when she was seven, where she came to you about her, her hair and skin color. Could you tell that story? Yeah. I'm, essentially, I communicate that my wife and I have have been very mindful ever since we've been married before we had children to one day when we have children affirm who they are, their beauty, their hair, I put them in environments that also affirm those things. Yeah. And so you walk around our house, there are images of black women, black men. Um, yeah, just things and, you know, television shows, movies, even trying to find cartoons. And so we never would think that there would be a day when our daughter would come to us, you know, with a dissatisfaction who she was. And uh, she went to a pretty much an all black school, um, lived around people who would constantly affirm her and tell her how beautiful she was, but yet and still that wasn't enough. And I realized that, you know, as long as Disney <laughs> and Nickelodeon was prophetic in her life, then there will always have this, uh, there will always be this, this, the deficiency in her because of all the examples of beauty and success and femininity, I guess you can say, were images of white girls and usually a, a certain type of white girl. 
And so I, we were just like, ah, this is so, so crazy. Cause we didn't know, like, we thought we had it all covered. We thought we had all right. our bases covered and it just goes to the power of storytelling and oftentimes unintended storytelling, sometimes very intended storytelling, you know, but sometimes also unintended storytelling and that you can be passively engaging in something and realizing that you're recalibrating how you feel about yourself and how you feel about the world just by passively looking at content consistently. And it made me a, a more alert and keen listener and viewer to what I am even taking in myself and what I'm allowing my kids to consume and even how I tell stories, hopefully, you know, what, what am I saying when I say certain words, who, how can this be interpreted? How does that paradigm play out in the church? We talked about it previously about um, black theologians and black Christian history. I think you could be a part of a church and, you know, you constantly quote certain people and those people, although they've said good things in the past, they've have some good, you know, theology to some degree. There's there are also an unintended communication of what they're, you know, is being said, right? An unintended truth and observation is that there are no black contributors to <laughs> to Christianity in this country, or that Christianity in itself just started in Europe or Italy and Rome, and that's and that's it. And so I think the church can do a better job of of expanding its theological Rolodex, if you will, not just in color, but in gender and, you know, other areas that will give people a better assessment on how to see the manifold wisdom of God. What do you hope people take from your book? I hope, one, it makes them just better humans. Um, <laughs> you know, what I try to do is start the book off by just communicating, you're not as good as you think you are. <laughs> the, that's the bottom line. If I can just shock people into realizing like, oh, I'm not as good as I think I am and my enemy is not as evil as I, th I, I hope them to be, then maybe we, we, we start off in a good place. And now you can listen to how do you tell stories? How do those stories affect other people? Um, what do you believe about yourself? What have you, what has been manipulated about the truths about yourself? And then from there, how do we take the understanding of our stories and our work and form a better society? Um, Christian and non-Christian, um, but ultimately, specifically Christians, because I feel like I have the ace or the joker to play on against them. It's like, hey, if you believe that Jesus and God is the authority, well, these are some things that has been communicated that I believe should urge you in a particular direction. It's such a good book. And you're writing, I mean, you bring that creativity and the depth that you do in your music into the, into the book. Seriously, very excited about it. Is there an album of yours that if, if people, if you were to say, this is the one, listen to this one. <laughs> um, yeah, I would probably say the best is the best to listen to, especially for our current time is probably the narrative, which was released in 2016. That's the one. Joe, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Great questions. And that was Show Baraka talking about his book, He Saw That It Was Good, Reimagining Your Creative Life to Repair a Broken World. You can learn more about Show's work as an author, actor, artist, and orator at barakology.com. 
That's B-A-R-A-K-A-O-L-O-G-Y dot com. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. I'm grateful to all of you who helped make this work possible. You can support Renovare in this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org slash donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find a collection of thoughtfully curated articles, podcasts, webinars, online classes, as well as information on events in our institute on our website at renovare.org. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. Other music is by Sho Baraka. Until next time, be well, friends, be well.